So our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Starts on page 863 of the Blue Bibles, if you're using those. It's Luke, chapter 7. It's verses 18 through 35. Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. God, would you speak to us this morning? We need your words. We need your truth. Would we not be offended by what we see, but would we trust you? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going through the Gospel of Luke, this preaching series, and we've been looking at two things in particular. So first, we've just been looking at Jesus. Just with all the craziness that's going on in the world, all the you know, ideological bubbles that we're tempted to get sucked into, we just want to fix our eyes on who Jesus is and what he does. So we keep that in the forefront of our minds. And second, we've been looking at what it means for a human life to be built to last, to be built on a foundation of the word of God so that we're able to weather the existential and the eternal storms that come. So today, Jesus is still the main character of this story, but his actions and his words circle around John the Baptist, who we haven't really covered, uh, even though it's in the Gospel of Luke. 
we started really in chapter four, but John's story starts in chapters one and chapter three. So you have to go back and read to get those kind of firsthand. Um, so even if you've been with us since the beginning of this sermon series, this might feel a little like walking into the middle of a movie where your friends are laughing or crying, maybe depending on what the movie is. And you're like, this seems significant, but I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Um, and so instead of giving you two sermons today, so one on the history and meaning of John the Baptist, and then one on today's passage, I'm going to do my best to condense these two into one because we're all running on an hour less of sleep. And so I'm going to try to be merciful to all of us. Um, so we'll do what we can here. Um, who was John the Baptist? So in terms of his identity, John was a physical relative of Jesus. So John's mother and Jesus's mother were cousins. And at this point, John is about 30 as well. So he's about six months older than Jesus is. And he had a miraculous birth as well. Not as miraculous as Jesus is, but he was born to parents who were beyond the age of childbearing and who had never had kids. And so, you know, his birth, his life have been significant. And he has three main roles to understand who John is. The first is John is a prophet. John is a prophet. That's what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, you went to the wilderness to see a prophet. Yes, and he's more than a prophet. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, among those born of women, none is greater than John, which is a huge testament to John's character coming from Jesus himself. Israel hadn't had a prophet in nearly 400 years. God had been silent for, almost, for centuries, and then John comes. And something about his words and his actions, people know, people trust that he is a prophet. Crowds come to him from all around the surrounding area to um, you know, hear his preaching and to, many of them to obey what he asks them to do. Um, a prophecy of his birth said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth, which doesn't sound as strange to us on this side of things as it was then. It was very strange, then a very unique gift. And it also said that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was like the goat of prophets. That's like greatest of all time. For those of you not familiar with the acronym, not the animal of prophets. Uh, I want to make that clear. Uh, so John is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, in a sense. He sort of summarizes and captures the spiritual end of the Old Testament itself. Now, a prophet's job is to bring the word of the Lord to the people. So it's to speak for God into the people's lives. These might be words of comfort. These might be words of challenge, but it's to, uh, you know, to tell them what God wants them to hear in that moment. And that leads us to John's second role. John led the people to repent as a prophet. That was one of his main ministries, to lead the people to repent. Jesus alludes to this in our passage in a few places. So in verse 24, he says, what'd you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind or a man dressed in soft clothing? It says, John lived and ministered in the wilderness. So out in the desert, and other passages tell us that he kind of dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey, which is not like a weird vegan diet. It was, he was subsisting on, uh, you know, what was there to be found. He was living a life out of the luxury and comfort of a town and city, you know, kind of scraping by in a life of visible repentance in the wilderness. And the wilderness itself was symbolically meaningful for the Israelites. So when God called Abraham at the very beginning in Genesis, he called him to leave his city and go out into the wilderness to meet God. When he called the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he called them into the wilderness to be transformed. 
As one writer said, he called them into the wilderness so he could get Egypt out of them, you know, after he got them out of Egypt. So God brought them into the wilderness to begin changing them, helping them repent and become his people. It was a place of refining and transformation. And Jesus also says down in verse 33 that John came eating no bread and drinking no wine, which were also part of that call to repent. They were, uh, you know, symbols of giving up something good, kind of like we do in fasting in the season of Lent, as a mark of repentance and sorrow over sin. And that's what John called people to do. His ministry was intense. He wasn't the fun pastor who got invited to bless parties. You know, his, uh, his words, he used things like wrath and fire and a brood of vipers. So he called people to repent of things that, you know, interestingly cut against both sides of our culture today, if you look at his words. He called them to repent of greed and the abuse of power on the one hand and repent of sexual sin and morality on the other hand. So even baptism, the act that gives him his title, uh, was an act of public repentance. So it was a grown Jewish adult who had been circumcised, who was part of the visible people of God, saying those things aren't enough. These external things don't make me clean on the inside. I need to be washed in a special way by the grace of God so my heart can be transformed. And so baptism was an act of public repentance. John didn't want everyone to come live in the desert forever. You might think that that's what repentance means is dressing like John and going about like him and, you know, decamping to somewhere, you know, desolate. You know, when tax collectors asked him what to do, how to repent, he didn't say, stop collecting taxes and become poor. He just said, don't abuse your power. Don't take more than you're authorized to take. Basically, do your job justly. Same with soldiers. You know, they were kind of working for the Roman Empire. They said, should we stop being soldiers? And he said, no, just don't abuse your power. Use your power to uphold the law and don't abuse or terrorize people. So John said, live your calling, live your life justly. Be a good neighbor. Be faithful to God. The angel who foretold John's birth said, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And that's what repentance means, really. Uh, It literally means turning. It means turning away from my self-centered goals and fixing my eyes on God so that everything I do in my life, not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, is done with sort of one eye up to God to say, is this how you want me to live? Is this how I can live with a heart that honors you and belongs to you, whatever that I'm doing? So that means that if I'm working or studying or being a parent or scrolling Instagram, you know, whatever it is, that I'm asking God, what do you want from this time right now? How can my heart be yours? So repentance might look like weeping openly over your sin, And it might look like paying your employees a fair wage or opening your house to your neighbors so you can show kindness to them and share the gospel with them. It might look like falling on your face before God, and it might just look like unfollowing social media accounts that lead you towards sin. Martin Luther said that God willed all of life to be repentance, and that's what that means, that living every hour of my life with my face turned to God and asking him, what do you want from me in this time? So that was John's second role, to lead the people to repent to that reality. And then his third and final role was to prepare the people for the Messiah. To prepare the people for the Messiah. In our passage, in verse 27, Jesus says, This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. That's a paraphrase from one of the last Old Testament prophets named Malachi. In our version of the Old Testament, this is from the second to last chapter in the whole thing. So right before the end of the Old Testament and the centuries of silence. So let me read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which includes this quote. It reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is God speaking. God says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way for me to come back. John's ministry was so powerful that people asked him if he was the Messiah, and he had to tell them no. He said, no, I'm not. And when they said, then who are you? He said, uh, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the Israelites knew from their scriptures, and this was John's calling that he knew he had, that there was going to be the messenger come, and then God was going to come back to make the world right. God was going to put an end to all sin, all greed, selfishness, everything else, and recreate the world without any sin or suffering. He was going to purify it like you put gold ore into a furnace to burn away the dross and end up with the pure, precious metal. And he was going to rule the world uh, you know, face to face, so to speak, through a perfect king called the Messiah, who had all these amazing promises attached to him. He had the perfect goodness and the perfect wisdom and the perfect power of God. And God was going to be present on earth to his people. John's role was to prepare the people for that return to prepare their hearts through repentance like we saw already, and to point to Jesus, whom John knew was the Messiah. He had baptized Jesus, and he'd seen heaven open and heard a voice declare, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He had called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he told his own followers to follow Jesus instead, saying, he must increase and I must decrease. He had called Jesus the bridegroom of God's people. So he's the groom, and I'm just his friend. He says, I'm the bridegroom's friend. I'm part of the wedding party, but he's the guy. And so John knew this, that this is who Jesus was. And that's who he was and why his ministry mattered. He's the last Old Testament prophet who led the people to repent and prepare for the return of God. Jesus affirms all of those things in this passage. He says, yes, that's who he was. But all of that makes the encounter in the first part of the passage just all the more poignant. Let's read again, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one that I've been telling people to prepare for? Or do I need to be looking for someone else? John, John, the the greatest born of women, John, the last Old Testament prophet is doubting. He's looking at the story of his life and how things are going and what Jesus is doing. And he's not sure anymore that he's on the right track. I want to say first that doubt 
is kind of a strange force, both in the Bible and in us. So if you're here and you're a skeptic or, and you're you know, struggling with doubt, or if you grew up in the church and you're struggling with doubt, you're kind of looking at the door the way out, you may be saying something like, I just need more evidence. I need some kind of sign from God, a miracle, a word from God to help me be certain and believe that will nudge me over the hump or bring me back to this thing. But there's a fascinating verse in the Gospel of Matthew right at the end, in the last four verses of the whole thing. Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead. He spent over a month talking with and teaching his disciples. He gathers himself, them to himself before he ascends to heaven. And Matthew records this. It says, and when they saw him, his disciples, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some of Jesus' own disciples who saw the resurrection, who saw all the evidence, nevertheless, they doubted. Something in them struggled to believe, to keep this belief. Like we've seen over the last several years, just if you're not a Christian and not in touch with Christianity, people can look at the same information and come to radically different conclusions about it. Doubt is a spiritual force that colors our interpretation of evidence. Evidence isn't wrong, evidence is good, but it's not sufficient. See, in our passage, John is he's sifting his memories, his experience, what could be evidence, and something in him is thinking, like, I thought I saw the heavens open and a voice speak, but maybe it was just thunder, you know, or I've, I've heard of these miracles, but maybe it was just something else. The evidence isn't persuasive by itself. So if you're here and you're saying, what I need more of is more evidence, it might be, but it might not be. Why is John doubting now? What's happened? One thing we haven't mentioned yet is that John sends messengers instead of coming in person, not because he's in some kind of like high school feud mentality where he's like, we're going to communicate through, you know, second party, third parties, but because he's in jail. The sexual sin that he preached against was the sin of their local king who took his brother's wife. So not John's brother's wife, but the king's brother's wife, um, while the brother was still alive, and married her. So John publicly condemned that act, and for that, he's arrested. And he's now rotting in a Roman jail, and he has been for some time. The prophet of the Messiah is rotting in a Roman jail. John's life isn't going the way that he thought it would. God isn't doing what John thought God was going to do. See, John had a hard and thankless ministry. He drew crowds, but he lived in the wilderness. You know, he didn't have a comfortable or an easy life, and he carried his ministry out faithfully. At no point in his life do we get the idea that John screwed something up to land him in this place. He's done what he was supposed to do, and it's landed him in jail. And the man that he has thought was God's Messiah, God's king over this, you know, petty local king who's thrown him in jail is not breaking him out of jail. Jesus hasn't come to rescue him and set him free with all the other good things that he's doing. John is in the same place. The plan he had in his mind of how his life would go isn't working out. Now, odds are, None of you were ministering in the spirit and power of Elijah as the last great Old Testament prophet, you know, the greatest born of woman, um, you know, before your plans got derailed. Just guessing. Um, But I'm also guessing that there are some of you here who have lived in a relationship with God for years, but had a season where you thought, this isn't the way things are supposed to go. 
This isn't the life that I thought God was going to give me. I thought I was going to be married by now. I thought my marriage would last. I thought I'd have a decent job and not be rich, but just be like financially stable. I thought I'd have kids, that my kids would do well. I thought I'd shake free of that sin struggle. None of those things are bad things. They're all explicitly described as good things. A healthy marriage, financial stability, faithful kids, freedom from sin and struggle. But God doesn't always give us those good gifts, even when we live faithfully with him. Not on this side of eternity, and make that clear. Not in this life. This is easier for us to see maybe on this side of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection than it was for John before it. But even so, suffering throws us into an existential crisis that can make us reevaluate the evidence of our lives and fit it into a different story. So the way that Jesus responds to John's doubt shows us something significant about how God handles our doubts. See, Jesus doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't write John off and say, how dare he start doubting me after all this? Forget him. Jesus treats John's doubts as an honest spiritual struggle. And that's what we should do as a church as well, is we should be a place where people can air their doubts and deal with them honestly and graciously. But Jesus addresses John's doubts in two ways. For the first, look at verses 21 and 22. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus responds to an honest question with an honest answer. He performs this huge series of healings, and he says, go tell John what you saw. Go tell him that people are being healed. Tell him about the dead young man I raised to life the other day that we saw last week. Tell him that the poor, the least of these, are hearing the good news of the gospel. In other words, he said, look at the story being written. He knows that evidence isn't completely enough in itself, but he gives more evidence. When we're struggling over our place in God's story, one of the things that we need to be reminded of is how the story is bigger than ourselves. So Paul, our pastor, has used the idea of a frame of pain before. That when we do something like hit our thumb with a hammer, then our whole world shrinks to the size of that thumb for a while. Uh, My wife might have broken her pinky toe a couple days ago, and the same thing happened. Her world was that pinky toe for the rest of that night. And so uh, we think it's healing. We think it's okay. She was able to dance at a wedding reception last night, so hopefully it's all right. But um, Jesus gently reminds John, that there's a lot more going on in the story than John's frame of pain. This week, uh, Spence Hackney, who's the head of our missions committee, emailed out a report from our global missions partner, Alpha Ministries. So Alpha is a ministry of Indian Christians for the Indian people. So it's locals reaching out to locals with material help and also with the gospel. And they take it into places that are really tough ground culturally. India is is one of the hardest places to be a Christian, and kind of the level of persecution has been rationing up over the last years. Um, So the report just has people's initials rather than their names. We have to, you know, kind of be mindful. But I read through that report this week, and, you know, in one of these countries that's least Christian and most hostile to Christianity, I read story after story of people being healed. 
finding spiritual deliverance and coming to faith, even in villages that ostracize and persecute them. It broadened my frame and reminded me of how big the kingdom story is. So if you're in a frame of pain or a time of doubt, sometimes maybe you need to sit down with other Christians and just say, just tell me stories about God's faithfulness. Help me see him being real to you because it doesn't feel real to me in that way right now. So that's one thing that Jesus does for John to address his doubt. And the second way he does it is in verse 23. Jesus says in verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. See, the word offended doesn't mean exactly what we usually mean by it. Uh, The Greek word under it is skandalizo, which is the root of our word scandal or scandalize. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away, that word for stumble is scandalizo. And in another place where he says, if anyone causes kind of one of the children who trust in me to sin, um, it would be better that a millstone be slung around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. That word for sin is once again, stumble or scandalizo. So uh, he is saying, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me or who doesn't stumble over who I am and what I do in a way that makes it so that they don't follow me. They get tripped up and, you know, leave me behind instead of staying with me. One sign of the uniqueness of the gospel, and what we would say is the God-given instead of human-invented nature of the gospel, is that parts of it scandalized every category of person in Jesus' day. So it scandalized the hyper-religious Jewish people because Jesus redeemed prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. It scandalized Jewish nationalists who hated the Roman Empire and wanted like a military coup to restore them to their place because he preached peace and love of enemies. It scandalized the Romans because its social ethic was so broad. You know, slaves, women, and children were accorded the same spiritual status as wealthy men, and its sexual and religious convictions were so narrow. So there's no group of people that we can point to historically and say, they must have been the ones to invent this because this totally lines up with all their priors. It's everyone had something about the gospel that was offensive. Jesus is saying, I'm something different. And if you're with me, you're going to have to confront some part of you that's scandalized by me. You're going to have to swallow some aspect of your uh, cultural or personal background to accept what I'm doing. I mean, in today's categories, maybe you'll be scandalized by how the gospel calls people to, you know, love their neighbor, whoever their neighbor might be across racial, class, or socioeconomic lines, political lines. Or it might be you're scandalized by how the gospel reinforces a sexual ethic that you think is repressive or narrow. Um, Again, if I was doing two full sermons, I would tell you two stories. I'm going to give you a very short summary of these stories of two Christians that I kind of looked at this week. One is a man named Thomas Terrence, who grew up in the 60s in Mississippi and, um, you know, was, lived in like a warped, like God and country uh, kind of aberrant culture. Uh, those things are wonderful, but they kind of twisted this to mean God and white people. And so he became a violent racist, actually a KKK terrorist. And so he was arrested and he was thrown in jail. And while he was in jail, he started reading within Western civilization to kind of look for things to reinforce his white supremacist privilege. And that brought him ultimately to Christianity and the Bible to where he was finally convicted of a sin, brought to repent. And then he saw in the Bible, you know, like truths like first John that, you know, if we say we love God, but hate our neighbor, the love of Christ doesn't abide in us. Terrence went on to become the co-pastor of a multiracial church in Washington, D.C. 
His life was completely redeemed from this stumbling block of racial superiority to trusting in Jesus and having that be a completely different uh, path for his life. And another person, her name is uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, She was an English and queer studies professor at Syracuse University, not a Christian at all, um, who was a faculty advisor for LGBT student groups and, you know, living in a relationship with, you know, a female partner as a lesbian. And she uh, wrote a letter to a local newspaper about a Christian event that she was basically protesting um, because it was, you know, she saw Christianity as narrow. And a pastor reached out to her. He wrote a letter back. He asked her some like really probing questions, but in a very polite way. And he invited her to come over for dinner as well. She took him up on the invitation and that started a multi-year friendship that resulted in her ultimately becoming a Christian, becoming convinced of the truths of the gospel. And so it started as a complete stumbling block for her, became something totally different. What changed? What makes that difference? So the Apostle Peter, writing in his first letter in the New Testament, he takes up this idea of Jesus being a stumbling block to those who believe. But he says there's another way to see Jesus, to not be scandalized by him. He writes this, As you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter says Jesus can be a stumbling stone, but he can also be the only sure foundation. That by his life, by his death, and his resurrection, he laid a foundation, not of things that we have to do to be made right with God, but a foundation that holds everyone who's willing to cling to it as their only source of life and their only hope. When we come to him and are willing to let the part of us that's scandalized die away so we can hold on to this rock, God starts building us into a spiritual house, the place where God dwells on earth. He draws us into the story that Jesus' miracles point to, you know, the end of disease and death, the eradication of evil, all those wonderful promises that are going to become true. And Jesus gently asks God in this passage, who am I to you? Am I a stumbling block because of your predilections and your preconceptions? Or are you going to be willing to die to those and build on me instead? And that's the question that he asks us today. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would let you be life to us. That if we have things in ourselves that make us doubt, or that bring us to offense in you, you would help us die to those. That you would encourage those whose faith is struggling. That you would remind them of your grace. And that you would help us uh, face the world in confidence and love, knowing that we are going to be a stumbling block, but that we are going to find people who will hear this message and know that it is life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.